I remember the first time I came across the reality that our consumer products expose us to toxic exposures, which include chemicals, heavy metals, and electromagnetic fields. It was 10 years ago when my firstborn was just a few weeks old. I had just ended my maternity leave, and after a demanding day at work, I climbed into bed at a little after midnight with a pile of books to skim. The books were about how to take care of a baby, how often she should eat, what she should eat, what her sleep pattern should be, and how to keep her safe. On page 73 of a book by an accomplished pediatrician, I encountered a sentence about nitrosamines, compounds that can cause cancer in some baby bottle nipples, and BPA, a hormone disruptor, in some baby bottles. I thought, what? That just can't be true. That doesn't make any sense. Toxic chemicals in baby products? That doesn't happen in America. And if that were true, then someone like my pediatrician or OBGYN would have told me this sooner. Turns out there's a meaningful body of science that proves that this is true. What we buy and do have a meaningful impact on our toxic exposures. My maternal instincts were extra heightened during my daughter's infancy. Her biological vulnerability was obvious to me. I would later learn how wise this is because biologically, infancy is one of our most vulnerable and important stages of development. So it was much more upsetting for me to learn about the health risks from toxic exposures while as a mother to an infant than if I learned about the topic if my children were older. Ideally, I would have learned about this before having children. Difficult times, however, can be opportunities. I was so upset by what I was learning that I harnessed my anger and indignation into creating a book that I wish I had sooner. I became determined to protect my growing family from the toxic exposures from what I buy and do. My husband and I have been blessed with a total of three beautiful daughters. It has been during their prenatal and postnatal periods, breastfeeding, and early childhood that I studied the toxic exposures of an average family. I never would have imagined that it would end up taking me eight years to complete my research and the book, but it did because information is conflicting. Facts are challenging to verify, credible sources are substantial but come from various sources, and our toxic exposures are pervasive. My book, titled A to Z of Detoxing, was published in October 2015. I created it to make it easier for others to learn about the toxic exposures that we can influence, which is an important and overlooked pillar of health. While the prenatal and postnatal periods are the most critical stages to protect, our toxic exposures are always relevant to us because some can affect biological processes like metabolism, menstruation, aging, sleep, human development, and more. Throughout this stressful learning period, I often desperately wished for a doctor like Dr. Hugh Taylor. Dr. Taylor serves in varied and impressive roles. He's chair of obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive sciences at Yale School of Medicine. He's chief of obstetrics and gynecology at Yale New Haven Hospital. He is an active researcher that has been funded continuously by the National Institutes of Health for more than 20 years. 
He's a professor at the Yale School of Medicine. He directs the Yale Center for Reproductive Biology. And even as an international expert in his field, he is a devoted physician who still sees patients. Dr. Taylor has published more than 200 articles in leading medical journals. He is the editor-in-chief of Reproductive Sciences. In the state of Connecticut, he's been named one of the best doctors, and his research has earned awards. What I cherish in Dr. Taylor is that, in addition to his impressive expertise and accomplishments, he also has a holistic perspective on reproductive health. He is informed about the current science on risks that toxic exposures may pose on fertility and their potential influences on IVF and pregnancy outcomes. Dr. Taylor and I recently recorded a conversation that I think every individual should listen to. If you or someone you know cares about fertility, having healthy children, and optimizing your health, then you should listen to this important conversation that includes simple tips that are easy to incorporate. And remember, as always, you can find podcast show notes on my website at www.nontoxicliving.tips. That's www.nontoxicliving.tips. Also, please share this podcast because we are interconnected by the health of our planet. So the more we can work collaboratively, the better off we and our future will be. Hello and welcome. I'm Sophia Ruan Goucher, author of the book, A to Z of Detoxing, The Ultimate Guide to Reducing Our Toxic Exposures, and now host of the Practical Non-Toxic Living Podcast, where I sit down with everyone from beekeepers to teachers, chefs to doctors, and all of the mothers, fathers, and children in between. Collectively, we'll learn tips and tricks for practical non-toxic living. I look forward to sharing my humbling and never-ending journey with all of you. In writing that, researching and writing it over eight years, I learned a lot about the science that exists on toxic exposures from household products and body burdens we're finding not just in humans, but also in wildlife and and possible associations with reproductive health. I've I've just developed so many questions that I haven't been able to figure out from my research. So it's especially exciting for me to be able to have this conversation with you. I can't say that I'm an expert on every toxic substance or the type of general things that you uh, that you uh, have written about. So I think you probably know more about some of them than I do. But uh, glad to be of help where I can. Yeah, I would love to hear more about your research and your perspective on on uh, fertility and how certain environmental factors we do have control over can either help or hurt our uh, reproductive health. Yes. To begin with, I'm not clear on is fertility more challenged than ever. Early July, the New York Times published an article about fertility in the U.S. being at an all-time low. But when you looked at the numbers, I don't know if you saw the article, but, I haven't, but I heard about it. Okay, okay. so uh, the, the numbers num- say that fertility for those under age 30 is, is at an all-time low, and fertility for or birth rates for women above the age of, from like 30 to 
44 maybe has increased. And so I looked at that and I thought, well, it's hard to tell whether fertility has increased or decreased or whether women are more educated and just choosing to have children later. I think that is part of it, but I think that's a complex issue. There's so many things that go into fertility. Some of it is social and some of it is biological. And I think you really have to think about both. Clearly women are spending more time pursuing careers and doing a lot of great things um, and delaying childbearing. And that always uh, will make uh, fertility more difficult. The older you are, especially over 35, fertility starts um, going down naturally in everyone. Um, and it's variable from person to person, but the longer we wait, the more that becomes a challenge. Um, but we also have introduced better and better fertility treatments. They've improved dramatically recently, so we can overcome some of those. So you may have seen, uh, you know, again, I haven't, I haven't seen data to support this, but I wouldn't be surprised if we saw a decreasing fertility as women delayed childbearing until uh, later for good reasons, and then improving fertility as um, in that same uh, age group as fertility therapies, uh, IVF, um, has become better, more efficient, more effective. And I think we'll see even more improvement. Now the latest trend is for people who want to delay their family, uh, we can freeze eggs yeah. and stop the clock from ticking and bring those eggs back at a later time uh, so we really don't have that same sort of age restriction on fertility. Yeah, that is pretty exciting for women. It's very exciting. So I think, I think you're seeing fertility um, decreasing for those social factors. We're seeing fertility increasing due to the medical improvements. But in the younger women where it's not age-related, I think we do see things going on uh, in society um, that are decreasing fertility. Um, one of which is how we eat. The obesity epidemic um, is uh, potentially uh, decreasing fertility, uh, making more women anovulatory. They're not having regular cycles and ovulating uh, every month. Uh, so that, that very well could decrease fertility. We see more polycystic ovary syndrome, and that has largely to do with diet and some of the things that we have in our diet, not, not just overeating, but probably some of the carb-heavy diets that we have today uh, that, are, that are really bad for, for uh, um, our metabolism and obesity. Um, uh, and we also see more... Uh, uh, availability, access, access to better contraception. Um, so, uh, you know, th uh, IUD has been rising in popularity. There are implantable contraceptive devices uh, that are uh, uh, more reliable. You can't forget to take your pill if you're on a, something implantable device uh, that are just more consistent birth control methods that may um, decrease the number of uh, unintended pregnancies, and about half of all pregnancies in this country are unintended. So that may artificially look like we're decreasing our fertility rate when in fact we're, we're just better at using contraception and have more access to better contraceptive devices. So in your experience, because you still are a practicing physician, is that right? Do you still see clients? 
I am. I'm a reproductive endocrinologist, which is a you know subspecialty of OBGYN. So, do you have patients who are in their 20s who are actively trying to become pregnant? Do you notice whether in that demographic there are more challenges than there were in the past? You know, it's hard for me to say. I, you know, and I, I hate to extrapolate from my uh, experience. I haven't really noticed that, but on a larger macro scale. Uh, um, it may very well be happening. Again, I think diet plays an important role, and we didn't even mention that list. The main point of our conversation today is these toxic exposures, right. which I think play a role. You do. Yes, and and somewhat in fertility um, uh, in an individual, but I think the more important point we're missing is how it affects the fertility of our offspring. What you do when you're pregnant may affect your child's fertility, and our fertility right now may have had a uh, may have been programmed by what our mothers did when they were pregnant. I think that's an important piece that we're missing. So toxic exposures 20 years ago, 20, 30 years ago, um, uh, when there was less awareness uh, of the implications of some of these agents um, may have um, uh, influenced us when we were still in the womb as a fetus or a young child and maybe impacting our fertility now 20, 30 years later. That's one of the biggest challenges. How do you connect the dots? How do you link those two uh, together? Most uh, people weren't even aware of some of the exposures that were out there back then. Our moms didn't know uh, that they were doing something that would be of concern. And it's almost impossible to go back now and recreate what our mothers did at the time uh, they were pregnant to see if that impacted our fertility. Yeah. Well, would you speak more about what we now know as a scientific and medical community about how our mothers or even grandmothers' exposures may affect our fertility today? Yeah. Well, the the classic example, the one that is the sort of established paradigm that everyone agrees about is diethylstilbestrol or DES. That is the model in humans and it parallels very nicely uh, uh, animal and what happens in animal experimental models um, is that uh, diethylstilbestrol, DES, uh, as we call it, a hormone given to women during pregnancy that was intended to be helpful, that was intended to reduce miscarriage, pregnancy loss, uh, make for a healthier pregnancy, in reality did not do that, uh, but had instead uh, devastating consequences to female fetuses that were exposed. So a baby exposed inside the mother's womb to the DES the mother was taking supposedly to help with the pregnancy resulted in in uh, her, the, the baby's reproductive tract developing inappropriately, abnormally. Um, and nothing obvious, when these children were born, they didn't, weren't born with birth defects. Even as they got older, um, there was nothing obvious uh, that would be detected that told us that they had birth defects. But when we went back and looked at women whose mothers had taken DES, 
during pregnancy, we found that they had a higher risk of miscarriage, pregnancy loss, more infertility, more ectopic pregnancies, misshapen uteri, early deliveries, premature babies, a lot of pregnancy problems um, that if we really looked um, with various x-rays, we could see that their uterus may have had some sort of abnormality, may have been misshapen, uh, may have been damaged by the DES, but that's something you don't see. It's inside. You don't see that unless you're really doing testing looking for it. Um, but the, the thing about uh, DES that um, helped establish the paradigm was that we knew, because it was prescribed, we knew exactly who got DES and who didn't. Mm -hmm. So we can say, your mom had DES and you have a much higher likelihood of having this problem. Think about all the other chemicals we're exposed to, we don't even know if we're getting in them or not. Or they may be so widely disseminated, everybody's exposed to a little bit. You can't sort it out into two groups and say, uh, this group with exposure has a problem and this group doesn't. It's almost impossible to know uh, when you don't know what the what you were exposed to. It's going to be impossible to trace back any medical problem, any problem with pregnancy, any problem with fertility to some sort of exposure that you didn't even know you had. Mm -hmm. uh, just uh, that that may have happened 30 years ago. Uh, just doesn't happen. So we have to rely on animal models. Um, and uh, for much of this. Now, DES, it's very clear. You give an animal DES, they'll have the exact same sort of problems that humans have. Uh, and you can model it nicely. And we're finding that, uh, unfortunately, the same is true for many environmental agents uh, that uh, some of which, thankfully, have, we're now no longer exposed to it to the same degree. But many environmental agents can have the same type of effect uh, again, especially when that exposure occurs during pregnancy, when we're still a fetus, when our organs are just developing, that's when we're so vulnerable, we're at our most vulnerable stage. Um, and uh, the DES was an estrogen-like compound, and we know that environmental hormones uh, can have the same types of effect. There are many chemicals in the environment right now uh, that are like function like estrogens, and there are some that function like testosterone, the male hormone, and we know that uh, we know that these can be harmful from our animal models. We give an animal some, one of these hormones or one of these chemicals that functions like a hormone, and it has some pretty bad effects. And if you think about it, uh, how hormones are supposed to work, the biology. We evolved over millions of years to make sure that hormones in our body really weren't influenced by the environment. Otherwise, it would wreak havoc on our bodies. We needed to make a specific chemical that would send a signal from one part of our body to another. That's what a hormone does. It sends us, it's made in one gland, and it sends a signal to another organ in our body. And we designed those. We evolved to have them not be uh, uh, interfered with it with a bunch of uh, essentially hormones uh, equivalents or other agents in the environment that would trigger the same response. We evolved very specific one-to-one -one signals so we wouldn't have to uh, um, uh, have that interference from the environment. And uh, it's not surprising now as we make 
thousands and thousands and thousands of chemicals that we're exposed to in our food and the environment that some of those just by accident might interfere with those pathways. We haven't had millions of years to test and evolve to make sure that we had very specific uh, responses that, that just sort of randomly, some of them are gonna interfere with our normal body responses. And that's exactly what's happened. Uh, if you throw you know, uh, 10, 20,000 chemicals at someone bound to interfere with something that's um, uh, a normal biologic process in the body. So it's made a mess. Yeah, I know. Um, would you talk more about how these chemicals can interfere in our bodies at extremely low doses? And also comment on the potential cocktail effects there can be from the mixture of chemicals. Yeah, that that's really important. Uh, I think both of those points are very, very important. Um, even very low doses of some of these chemicals can have profound effects, especially in the developing fetus, especially you know children and the and the uh, fetus the. Uh, uh, the uh, in the pregnant woman if a pregnant woman is exposed her babies at bigger risk because it doesn't take much uh, during these particularly vulnerable sensitive times some of the research that we've uh, done also show that although we 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 think about these chemicals as not being very potent hormones sometimes the way they work during pregnancy in the fetus is a little uh, different. The mechanism uh, they work in a fetus or in a young child might be a little different than they work in adults. Uh, the uh, baby is designed uh, to respond to lower doses of certain hormones and respond in a different way uh, that programs them for life. This is a time of development when we are being programmed to develop appropriately, to grow appropriately, um, and these uh, uh, implications are that whatever happens during that period, we are carrying with us for the rest of our lives. And these hormones and environmental chemicals, by interfering with hormones, are, are doing it in a different way than they might in an, an adult, uh, because they're really very different biology going on then. Um, and even very low doses of these chemicals, or that mimic very low doses of hormones, um, can have profound effects. So just because something is too low a dose to have a profound effect on you or I doesn't mean that it might not have a very profound effect at a low dose uh, at a different stage of life. Very important. Um, the other thing you mentioned is, is the cocktail that we're exposed to. None of us are exposed to one single agent at a time. Uh, the you know, most of our animal experiments are done just that way. We give one agent and say this has an effect or not. But many of these things interact and have a much more profound effect in the real world when we don't isolate them one at a time. Uh, it's kind of silly to think that uh, we would ever be able to see the totality of the effect of chemicals on our body by looking at one at a time uh, when many of them are falling into the same sort of classes work together or work on the same pathways, then they have uh, multiple effects. I mean, I think some of the best examples to show uh, just how profound these effects are come from, from studying wildlife. Uh, uh, 
in uh, some of the very polluted areas. I, I like to quote the work of the late Lou Gillette, um, who uh, was a uh, biologist who studied alligators. Um, and uh, um, he actually went wading in the swamps of Florida and captured alligators. Um, and uh, uh, pretty heroic, but what, what he found was um, comparing the sort of more pristine lakes uh, and waterways to those that were near uh, or in polluted areas where there might be a lot of pesticides running off farmlands into, into ponds and swamps or near industrial plants that had a lot of uh, chemicals that um, when you were exposed to higher doses of these chemicals or various mixtures of these chemicals as might naturally occur, um, that these animals had tremendous abnormalities and most of them had to do with reproduction. Um, that uh, they saw uh, animals that had uh, sex reversed, they had uh, a male that had certain female components and vice versa. Uh, the females would be infertile, the eggs would be abnormal, the males would have small testicles or, or small penises and um, uh, low sperm counts uh, or, or even again some sex reversal. Uh, they had uh, uh, much lower success rates at laying eggs, at those eggs hatching um, and reproducing. The biggest effects on these animals were reproductive effects. And this was, again, uh, uh, representative of the type of mixed exposures that you'd see out, out in the environment. Um, so I think reproduction is one of the most concerning factors when we talk about toxic exposures and about, uh, especially about these environmental chemicals, many of which are, are hormone mimics or endocrine disruptors as we call them. The reproductive tract is one of the most sensitive, one of the most important hormonally regulated organ systems, very uh, sensitive to perturbations in hormone levels or blocking hormones, um, and especially uh, sensitive, again, during development when, when we're a fetus or a, or a young child. Uh, it's uh, crucial. So it, it seems like we have a lot more data on how, um, uh, I, not necessarily a cause-effect relationship between a high body burden and reproductive challenges in wildlife, but 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 there is the present. There tends to be there. There's some studies that show a high body burden of certain chemicals. Uh, is also found with certain reproductive uh, deformities or other things. Absolutely. Um, but are we, is the data on humans starting to mirror the trends that we have outlined in wildlife? Oh, exactly they do. I mean, uh, you can find a few more extremes in wildlife because you can go to very polluted areas where we wouldn't be drinking the water. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we can give animals uh, these toxic chemicals that we would never obviously expose humans to, um, but uh, they do. And the problem we have is that, that people are out there saying, well, those are only animals, they're not the same as people. How can you, you, know, how can you uh, extrapolate to people? And when we do studies in people, we're never gonna give people these toxic compounds. 
And then we're not going to wait 30 years to see how their children came out. I mean, that's ridiculous. So we, what we have are these correlations in people between maybe level of some chemical in the blood or uh, in the eggs or some other uh, a tissue, um, and, and, um, uh, but not a real cause and effect proof. The higher the level, the more likely we are to have some adverse outcome. Um, but people dismiss that, saying it doesn't prove that it's cause and effect. The same way people said, well, most smokers don't get lung cancer, or just because you got lung cancer, how do you know that tobacco actually caused it? Right. Um, it we're, we're sort of at the same point in, the, in some of these toxic exposures now in people, that just because higher levels are associated with disease uh, doesn't mean that everybody who has the high exposure gets the disease. Uh, you know, how do we know that's cause and effect? But then we have the same correlations in animals, and we can prove it in animals by giving the chemical and showing that you have that toxic effect. And when I think the human, the animal, and the animal data all line up perfectly and are telling us the same thing, uh, that's very good proof that it really is cause and effect in humans as well. I'm convinced. I am too. So a few years ago, the World Health Organization released an excellent report about endocrine disrupting chemicals. And in it, they outline trends that science has identified in wildlife and the body burdens of certain chemicals, like we've just discussed. But they also noted that in certain parts of the world, there tends to be decreasing semen quality. And um, there seems to be like, good data on that is that i don't know if that's outside your scope no i mean i not not what i study personally but there are reports that show decreased sperm quality uh, more recently and again we know we can mimic that in animal models with certain toxic exposures the phthalates for example interfere with testosterone action testosterone is important for male sperm production um so there are a chemicals out there that we know can have those effects that are commonly used today. Um, and phthalates are in almost everything. Uh, fragrances uh, are, are particularly, fragrances and some makeup uh, are particularly uh, uh, important sources of phthalates that we put on our skin and absorb pretty readily. Uh, but it's in most flexible plastics have some phthalates in them. Um, so, I mean, there, there are, we know, uh, uh, agents out there that are uh, certainly capable of doing this that we're exposed to. I was really, really happy that you spoke out about how cell phone radiation may impair the developing brain. Did you talk more about that? Yeah. Um, so actually, I'm a fertility expert by by background. Uh, my my intent wasn't to to. Uh, see how it uh, affected the developing brain. We, we stumbled on this by accident. Um, we wanted to know if cell phone exposure could affect fertility. There have been many studies now that have linked cell phone exposure to lower sperm counts. Um, and uh, we wanted to test that out in a mouse model. There have been a lot of studies that have shown cell phone exposure might have a link to Brain tumors might have a link to, especially when children or pregnant women are exposed, might have a link to behavioral problems. 
Um, but you know, many of those have been dismissed. The, the behavioral problem studies have been dismissed, saying, "Well, of course, if the mother's talking on her cell phone all the time and ignoring their kid, of course they're going to have behavioral problems." Uh, but we wanted to see if there was really any biologic basis of the to the fertility aspect of this, and what we found were behavioral problems. So we did not find we exposed mice to cell phones. Uh, during pregnancy and we looked at their offspring. We thought again, going back to the idea that the fetus is the most sensitive to these types of exposures that when we're developing, when we're very small and just starting to grow and the organ systems are forming, that for most things is the most vulnerable sensitive time. So we exposed mice to cell phones and we just took the simple cell phone, the one that was uh, most readily used at that time uh, and we took half the pregnant mice and put a active cell phone on the cage uh, that was muted and, and silent, so the mouse didn't know if the cell phone was on or not. And then in another uh, another room, we had other mice that had a uh, cell phone on the cage that wasn't active, wasn't it was turned off, so it wasn't sending out a signal. Um, so the only difference really was the the radiation exposure coming from the cell phone. And we were interested, in a, being that I'm a fertility expert, we were interested in fertility. Uh, there were no differences in fertility. They were reproducing, male and female, both reproduced well. They had uh, normal f fertility. Uh, but we also tested behavior more because if they weren't getting pregnant, we wanted to determine whether it was a low sperm count, a low egg count, or whether they just weren't behaving properly in mating. So we put behavioral tests in there more to find out about uh, why they weren't getting pregnant. Unfortunately, or rather, I shouldn't say unfortunately, uh, uh, contrary to what we expected, they were getting pregnant. So, but what they, but what was the key finding was uh, that they were not behaving normally. They were more active um, and anxious, and they were, um, uh, but but not worried about it. They were. Uh, sort of hyperactive, bouncing off the world, off the walls. Their memory was a little impaired, uh, but they weren't. Uh, they were not anxious or worried about that uh, that abnormal behavior. Um, so uh, the cell phone exposure to the fetus um, had this effect on the brain uh, that led to abnormal development uh, as these mice grew up. And that behavior persisted as they became adults. It was not just uh, immediately after exposure. The mice were exposed only during pregnancy when they were a fetus. We waited till after they were born, let them grow up, and tested them at several different time points. And their behavior pers was persistently abnormal wow. uh, in adulthood. So that programming early on during fetal development, they carried the consequences of that with them for the rest of their lives. Uh, so that exposure for the uh, uh, time of uh, roughly two weeks during a three-week mouse pregnancy uh, was enough to permanently alter their behavior. Now, when we exposed them later on in life, we didn't see those same type of effects. Again, going back to the point that um, the brain is particularly uh, sensitive, as most organs are, uh, to toxic exposures very early on in life when we're still developing. That's when it's most vulnerable 
when it's uh, small and just starting to form, that's when uh, any perturbation can do the most harm uh, and often programs the brain. The brain develops abnormally and is stuck that way for the rest of our lives. Same thing with other organ systems as well. If we don't get it right in the beginning, if we don't form those organs appropriately and properly, uh, we'll carry an abnormally developed organ with us for the rest of our lives. So the mice were behaving abnormally, um, and this mirrored exactly what people have found in humans. Uh, Again, as I mentioned, large European studies have shown that women who used cell phones a lot, high cell phone exposure uh, during pregnancy were more likely to have children with behavioral problems, very much mimicking what we were able to see in mice. Uh, And again, those studies were dismissed, of course, that mother's talking on the cell phone, maybe that's why she has a child with problems, (laughs) not not paying attention to the kid. (laughs) No, that wasn't it. We were able to prove that this is really a cause and effect phenomenon. So this goes back to what we were saying earlier, you know, sometimes you can only find a correlation in humans, and you might attribute it to lots of different things that are related. Uh, but, but with the mouse studies, uh, um, we, we knew exactly that this was cause and effect. There was no difference between those two groups other than the phone was on, and the mice didn't even know which ones were exposed or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also took, took their brains out and showed that they had differences in electrical conductivity in the brain. We really showed those wow. brains functioning differently. Wow. Uh, again, they were, were for, based on that early life exposure, that brief early life exposure during pregnancy, they were programmed differently. And that same thing did not happen uh, when, um, uh, when the exposure occurred as an adult. Uh, vulnerable time. Uh, so, And there was a, um, a dose-responsive effect. If we cut back the exposure, we had the cell phone on transmitting a signal um, from a certain point in the pregnancy all the way till just before they were born, uh, 24 hours a day. As we cut that back to fewer hours a day, we could see that uh, effect uh, lessen as well. So a clear dose response, uh, but it tells us that we can really start to mitigate this. I mean, the, mm-hmm. the beauty of all the things we've talked about here is that you can really do things to limit your exposure, and it's hard in this day and age to get down to zero exposure, but by cutting back, by reducing exposure, you can have a profound effect. Mm-hmm. Again, these mice, if we cut back to uh, from 24-7 to just a few hours a day, uh, there was no discernible effect. So we really can change our lifestyle and have an impact um, uh, on um, uh, development and and again uh, especially I, I would uh, caution women out there who are pregnant or thinking of becoming pregnant to know that that is really a very vulnerable time this is this is the time to educate yourself and learn about what exposures might be harmful mm-hmm. those that are clearly known to be harmful and even those that might be um, and start to think about, eliminating those for the for the duration of pregnancy and and uh, early childhood exposure as well I agree um, my my feeling has been and I don't know that there's any science to prove it but my feeling has been that in this world where we can't avoid 
electromagnetic fields, including cell phone radiation, completely, and we can avoid tox other toxic exposures completely. Allowing yourself breaks so your body can recover is extremely helpful. So it sounds like you know with the mice studies, um, when you're talking about the dose, the dose relationship. Um, that that idea carries through. So anyone listening who's thinking, oh no, but at work I can't control it. Well, at home they can, right? And you know, there's some very simple things you can do too. Uh, I mean, uh, I mean, the cell phone I think is is the one that is most concerning to me. I know we're we're worried about all sorts of different types of electromagnetic fields and radiation exposure. But the amount of exposure that comes from a cell phone is huge compared to most other exposures. That that little transmitter that we hold right up against our heads is sending out a signal, has to broadcast out a signal that's going to go to a cell phone tower miles away. It has to send out a huge, powerful signal as opposed to uh, other signals that are in the air around us uh, are very diffuse. It has to send out a huge pulse that's going to reach that tower. It's going to be spread out around uh, over miles, but still hit that tower. It has to be a huge signal at its source. And if we hold that source of that signal where, that, where the energy coming out is very intense uh, right next to our body, that's where we get the greatest exposure. So I really think that the cell phones are, are probably the biggest concern, far bigger than anything else, than the Bluetooth, which doesn't transmit a signal very far, or being in a area where there's wireless, where we're far away from the, the transmission of the signal and where those wireless signals usually aren't powerful enough to go long distances. It's our phone that's programmed to give out a very powerful signal that'll make it to a tower miles away, um, sends it out in all directions and hopes to get enough that'll hit that tower. It has to give out a massive amount of energy and we hold that right up next to our heads. Uh, that I think is the one thing where we can make a difference, that using the Bluetooth is probably a great idea. Using, plugging something in, holding that earpiece up to our head rather than have the transmitter right next to our ear. When we're not talking on the phone, move it away from you. Don't, if you're pregnant especially, don't clip it on your belt or put it in your front pocket or leave it on your lap. That's worse. Um, uh, you know, put it on the other side of the room. The, the intensity of that radiation, it, it goes from a single point on the phone, it spreads out in all directions. So it's really the square of the distance from the phone um, that determines how much exposure you have. So as you move further away from your phone, that signal dissipates pretty rapidly. It doesn't take a lot of movement uh, away from the phone to make a big, big difference. So when you're driving your car, don't leave your cell phone on your body, stick it on the seat next to you. Uh, when you're in bed, don't sleep with it on your pillow. You better move your phone to the other side of the room uh, or even when you're in your office. Don't leave it clipped to your body, put it uh, you know, in the far end of your desk. Even that type of small movement can make a big, big difference. Um, again, uh, most concerned uh, during pregnancy when you're most vulnerable. Um, I think the, of all these electromagnetic fields, I think the cell phone is the most worrisome, 
especially in pregnancy, and it's easy enough to limit your exposure. Uh, again, with a wired device that you plug into your phone, old-fashioned uh, headset, or even the Bluetooth is lower energy, you can move the transmitter, which sends out most of the energy, uh, away from you and uh, be a lot safer. Excellent advice. Have you noticed any influences that toxic exposures may have on the outcome of IVF? Yeah, there have been a lot of data. So, I mean, especially uh, bisphenol A, the uh, estrogen-like plastic has suggested it may interfere with egg quality and IVF performance. Um, so, uh, I, I advise that women uh, trying to get pregnant uh, or who are pregnant, a lot of our studies have been looking at BPA, bisphenol A uh, exposure um, and uh, the effect on the fetus. So if you either are pregnant or thinking about trying to become pregnant, uh, avoid bisphenol A. Now, it's the same type of comment I made before. You can't avoid it all, but um, you can cut down. Yeah. You're producing it. Now, bisphenol A is uh, in uh, plastics. It is the agent that makes uh, plastics very rigid. So it is found in those, not the, you know, crunchy water bottles that we get at uh, most uh, convenience stores or supermarkets um, uh, today, but it's more the hard, rigid water bottles that are more the permanent ones that you keep and reuse. Um, the uh, water cooler bottles and the, the hard, you know, bottles that you might take and put in your bike. Um, many of those manufacturers, because of this publicity, have removed the BPA from, from the bottles. Uh, but they've been replaced by other plastics that we just haven't tested yet, so I'm not sure how safe that is. Um, and bisphenol A or BPA is found in the epoxy linings of anything that comes in a can, essentially. Um, so if you eat out in a restaurant, you're probably eating something that came out of a can at one point and uh, has BPA in it. So avoiding eating things out of plastics, avoiding eating out to get some fresh fruits and vegetables instead of canned goods um, is easy enough to do, especially again when you're pregnant or thinking of becoming pregnant. It's easy to do and probably has a whole lot of other health benefits other than just yeah. getting rid of the BPA. It's just yeah. a good, healthy lifestyle for many reasons. I never, agree. Never a bad idea to do that. Yeah. Generally speaking, there's still lots of uh, differing opinions on the risks of, of BPA, but it seems like from your perspective as a fertility specialist, you're you're kind of clear that BPA poses risks for someone who's trying to conceive or who is pregnant? Yes, I, I believe it does. Uh, it is a controversial field. Um, and some of the controversy comes from, again, studies that have been correlative in humans without, uh, and, and not every animal study looks at the same timing, the same conditions. Again, my, my own feeling is that pregnancy is the most vulnerable time and the, probably the worst part of BPA exposure is when you're exposed as a baby or fetus and what how it affects your reproduction 30 years later. We just don't have answers to those kind of questions yet uh, because uh, the time delay it would take. And uh, as I said before, eliminating 
BPA or at least dramatically reducing it is so easy. And even, let's say I'm wrong and BPA isn't harmful at all. I don't believe that, but let's say it is. Think of all the other benefits you'd get from eating fresh fruits and vegetables uh, and eliminating, not getting everything out of can or plastic. Yeah. Uh, eating high quality foods has so many other health benefits that it's the right thing to do either way. Um, so I think there's really no downside to doing that. Uh, I'm a strong advocate for that. Um, and why not uh, be cautious? There's something out there called the precautionary principle that just says that if, you know, in, until we're, uh, even if we're unsure, why not avoid things that we can easily avoid without disrupting our lives in a major way that may be harmful? Even if there are people who are not 100% sure they're harmful, you might as well avoid them, especially at times in your life that are crucial, like when you're trying to get pregnant or doing pregnant or during pregnancy. Really no downside to avoiding them, living a healthier lifestyle. They're probably things we're not even looking at yet that may be implicated in uh, future generations as harmful that if we, uh, that we avoid by eliminating a lot of this artificial uh, material we're exposed to, the pesticides, the additives, the packing and the containers, shipping containers that contaminate some of our food. Why not go back to eating more healthy, organic, natural, unprocessed um, food? Uh, there's really no downside to that, other than a little more expense. That's always an, an issue for those who uh, have trouble affording it. Um, it's, it's a problem. And uh, hopefully we can uh, find ways to help uh, to help encourage that and subsidize that for those who can't afford it. But uh, well, but I think it's an important investment in trying to reduce more serious problems down the road. So the upside could be life changing. Absolutely, I think as a society, it is a very smart investment. We will save much more by not exposing, not suffering the consequences of these toxic exposures. Right. So if we can work together as a group to make sure we recognize that and provide these investments for people who can't afford it early on to save society a greater expense later, it will it will not only be good for people, but it'll be a smart investment and a and wise uh, financial move for for mankind. Yeah. Would you comment on whether precocious puberty is becoming more common and, uh, and also whether you think toxic exposures are interfering with menopause? I haven't read anything about menopause, but I'm just curious. Well, I think um, one, puberty is happening earlier uh, and it, it's hard to know how much of that is uh, nutrition, obesity. Uh, if you are undernourished, you certainly can go through puberty late as we have better nourishment and maybe now too much of the point we're getting into obesity, that does tend to encourage early puberty. So that's part of it. But there are some, there is some evidence that uh, these reproductive hormone-like chemicals in the environment, the endocrine disruptors, can lead to early puberty. So I think the there's no question that puberty is occurring earlier uh, in the world. How much of it's due to uh, environmental exposures isn't exactly clear, but I think at least part of it is. Uh, there's less data on menopause, but we know toxic exposures that many of them can lead to early menopause and early infertility. Uh, 
Um, cigarettes are the the classic. We know that people go through menopause a year or two earlier if they've been smokers. Uh, they become infertile. They lose their natural fertility at a little younger age. Um, so uh, it may not harm fertility uh, when they're in their 20s and, and uh, you know their ovaries won't shut down then, but they will in general lose the ability to become pregnant at an earlier age. We all do at some point in life as we as we uh, uh, hit our peak fertility in our 20s and it declines in our later 30s uh, and then drops off to uh, zero somewhere uh, 40 or early 40s. Uh, but uh, smokers on average, that transition to uh, no longer producing good viable fertile eggs happens a year or two earlier and they hit menopause a year or two earlier. Would you talk about some of the potential risks with precocious puberty? I've read that your body, um, if a woman, if a girl, the earlier a girl goes through puberty, the longer she's been exposed to estrogen, and that may increase the risks of certain things later on. Yeah, I mean, there there are a lot of, all the, hormonally related diseases, breast cancer, and some others, the longer you're exposed to hormones, um, uh, your own natural hormones, uh, the higher the risk, although that change is small. Um, the uh, toxic exposures, we didn't even talk about this, but there may have some impact on breast cancer as well. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of breast cancer, the, the couple of big problems with precocious puberty is one, in women, when they go through puberty, the estrogen stops bone growth, so they'll often be short, never attain their full height. Uh, and second, the breast development and others that come on, they will be out of sync with their peers. It is often very uh, limiting socially or problematic socially if they uh, if they are going through puberty and have apparent changes of uh, uh, pubertal changes much earlier than all their peers. Um, it's very difficult for these children and, and socially uh, um, uh, something that needs to be dealt with. So a lot of, a lot of uh, negative implications to that precocious puberty. Yeah. And, you know, you mentioned we hadn't even talked about breast cancer, but the reality is when we're talking about endocrine disrupting chemicals, they are being associated with a really long list of potential health complications, not just breast cancer, yep. but like, you know, as you you know, like ovarian cancer and, and many and other, other things. Obesity, heart disease, all sorts of things, not just the typical traditional hormone-related diseases you might expect, breast cancer, because the breast is very hormonally sensitive, but other diseases um, uh, that we might not normally think of as hormonal, but that, that really they, it plays a role. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, increasing obesity, uh, uh, I'm sure endocrine disruptors play a role. BPA has been implicated. Uh, heart disease, breast cancer, reproductive tract diseases that I'm particularly studying, uh, endometriosis uh, being one. It's a disease where the uterine lining grows in the abdomen and outside of the uterus uh, that can cause pain and infertility and and we've got some evidence that early life exposure to uh, bisphenol A and some other environmental estrogens 
that can be found in pesticides and other agents uh, can lead to an increase in, in that disease and many other uh, diseases that are classically related to hormones and even some that aren't. Uh, I mean, again, the, the, the organs that are most sensitive to female hormones, the estrogens, are uh, the reproductive tract, so you'd expect it would affect fertility, pregnancy, but also the breast um, and uh, have implications for breast cancer. Mm-hmm. How did you end up focusing on this area? Uh, well, well, it's a it's a, a long story. Um, you know, I was always interested in um, uh, medicine and uh, biology. I uh, was particularly concerned about the idea of developmental programming, the theme that we've talked about throughout this conversation, uh, that certain things that happen early on in life uh, are uh, programmed the rest of our lives, so that uh, something that happens as a fetus or a child may shape the way an organ or a tissue forms that uh, it remains that way for the rest of our lives. So very important uh, and something that I think isn't paid attention to enough. Uh, As an obstetrician um, who cares a lot about pregnancy, it's not just a healthy delivery. It's making sure that that baby isn't uh, exposed to anything that may make that development go awry. Now, thankfully, we've found most of the horrible things out there that cause terrible birth defects that are obvious as soon as the baby's born, that the you know, baby uh, uh, has some horrific um, birth defect. We've, we've eliminated most of the really bad agents uh, that can cause that sort of obvious harm. But it's the more subtleties that I think we were ignoring and, it, and that may actually have a very profound effect. It's just not as obvious and immediate. But if agents that we're exposed to are influencing our fertility later, are influencing our cancer risk later, are influencing our risk of heart disease later in life, uh, that's something that we really need to focus on and you really need to prevent uh, before we're even born to optimize. Huge diseases that have an impact on society, uh, uh, I think, uh, that affect nearly everyone uh, and a much more profound effect, a uh, much more common and prevalent effect than simple birth defects. Um, these are things that affect all of us um, or will affect all of us at some point that are influenced by our development as a fetus. And I think that's an aspect of medicine that isn't studied well enough now and needs a lot more attention. Like everything else in medicine, once the damage is done, once the disease is there, it's hard to fix it. But if we can keep things healthy, um, prevent disease, we are doing a much better job, much more likely to keep people healthy and have them living longer, uh, healthier uh, lives. So uh, I, I think this is an area that's neglected. Um, and uh, an area that's just been of of great interest to me and where I think there's still a lot of room to have a big impact. I, you have communicated so many things that I think are, I have felt are so important, but there hasn't been a voice to communicate um, um, from an informed perspective and a grounded perspective on, on really being conservative about our exposures and 
and encouraging the public to take this topic more seriously and that there's so much we can do by being more informed. There's so many daily choices we make that can be healthier. And yes. Yeah, so I, I, I am so grateful that you do what you do. Um, Thank you. I appreciate it, it. Yeah, it's so important. Do you feel that that um, um, this lack of awareness is more common in the United States, or do you think it's worldwide? Boy, I think I, I see growing awareness. I see people being proactive about this. Uh, I mean, there is not never enough awareness. I, I wish everyone would be more knowledgeable, and we need more research to to allow us to make sure we're giving accurate information. But I've seen legislatures in Europe and Canada pass laws eliminating BPA and other toxic agents uh, in, in many foods and, and uh, you know, uh, baby products. Uh, I've seen consumers vote with their feet in the United States, enough that we see things labeled as BPA-free and Nalgene and Walmart have taken the BPA out of their products. Uh, I, I think people are informed. People are demanding healthier uh, uh, foods and containers and uh, uh, eliminating chemicals from the things that we're exposed to every day. Um, I, I, I see this is going in the right direction. It's never fast enough for me and we can always mm-hmm. do more. Uh, but I, I see this as, especially in the US, being driven by the consumer. It is things like what you're doing here today, informing people that are moving this forward. I wish we could do more, um, and there is a lot more to be done to identify all the effects. Um, uh, and I, I think there's a lot of, we focused on BPA, uh, consumers are well aware of that, but there's so many other chemicals that people aren't aware of. The phthalates that's in, uh, again, so many cosmetics and air fresheners, and in a lot of the products we buy, I think, might be the next step uh, to uh, educate people more about a lot of these other common exposures that they haven't heard as much about yet. But uh, I think this is the right way to do it. We can, by educating, informing people, they're listening. And I think they'll they'll vote with their feet and get things done. I think that's more effective than, and fast, certainly faster and less controversial than trying to do it uh, through legislation. Yes, I agree. We are very much on the same page. And I studied all my household products because I wanted to do everything I could to protect my children. And I just I found some common denominators, which I call household repeat offenders, because you can't, there have been over 84,000 chemicals introduced into the United States since World War II. We can't study all of them. But uh, there are general themes, and like plastics is one, and uh, polyurethane foam is another. So there, there can be a simple approach for consumers to make smarter choices. Um, I'm just wondering, I, when my friends have struggled with fertility, they've looked to alternative therapies like acupuncture and, and herbal medicine. Do you find that some of those alternative therapies can help with fertility? Well, acupuncture has been fairly controversial. Uh, there's a large study that's just out from one of my colleagues here at Yale uh, that that very well done, uh, really showing that there is no benefit from acupuncture. Um, you know, I, I think 
like so many of these things, um, uh, there's, they're, they're, it's complicated that things like stress play a big role uh, in fertility, exercise, weight. There are a lot of natural things you can do. And things like acupuncture may work for some people where it reduces stress and people enjoy it. But if you do a medical study where you randomize half the people to get acupuncture and they're afraid of the needles and stress yeah. out over it, that's not going <laughs> not gonna to work. Um, so I, I think, you know, it's hard to know what it works in the right setting where it's naturally applied. Uh, but uh, but I haven't seen evidence that I consider um, uh good evidence that acupuncture is really helpful. But other things I think are, I think, you know, exercising the right amount, maintaining an, a good body weight, not to be obese and not to be too thin either, um, to uh, eat right and eliminate these uh, chemicals that detoxify, I think is an important thing you can do. Um, those, those things really do matter. Um, pay attention, uh, you know, pay attention to what you're your your body's telling you uh, if you uh, uh, are feeling particularly tired. I mean, get you should have that checked out. Uh, if you're uh, um, uh, not uh, having normal menstrual cycles, if you're uh, um, finding that uh, there may be other uh, things related to hormonal imbalance or affecting your metabolism, all those things. Uh, should be either checked out by a medical professional or or um, things that you can uh, work on to, uh, uh, for example, the stress, the exercise, the diet are all things you can work on that can have a profound effect on fertility. Uh, so I think you want to optimize all those things uh, before you get to the point where you need some sort of artificial fertility care. Um, often that's helpful. I mean, there are other things that just do need medical treatment. Uh, if your tubes are scarred closed i mean there's there's uh, no no sort of remedy like that's going to work but people who have slightly irregular cycles or aren't ovulating properly uh things like stress reduction uh the maintaining the proper body weight uh, eliminating toxic exposures i think make a big difference great that's really helpful for many women to hear are more women getting ivf than before they are. It's growing. Um, IVF is very successful. Uh, uh, again, it, it works well, and uh, the success rates are better than ever and been getting better and better. What are they now? Uh, um, well, in a woman under the age of 35, uh, any reasonable IVF uh, program these days should have a better than 50% chance of pregnancy per cycle, wow. uh, per attempt. Uh, and usually that's with putting only one or at most two embryos back in, so without the risk of the, the uh, 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 multiple gestations. Uh, often even much higher than that at the top programs. Um, and uh, so within a couple of cycles, uh, one or two cycles, most people should be pregnant. Um, uh, assuming they're uh, not, haven't waited until the point where uh, their egg count is diminished. If you come in in your mid-40s, there's not a whole lot we can do with IVF to overcome egg loss. That's something we still haven't found a way to correct. There are groups working on stem cell therapies uh, or uh, stem cell-derived products to try and improve that. But as of right now, uh, that is not. Uh, there's no routine therapy that can, can reverse that age-related decline uh, in egg production. But aside from that, IVF is, is uh, exceedingly successful. Again, uh, for certain 
fertility problems, IVF is a great solution and the only solution. But as we talked about, there are a lot of other simple natural things you could do prior to that that, that can really help. We started this conversation touching upon freezing eggs. Yeah. How good is the science now? Great. That's an area that's been rapidly progressing over the last few years. You know, it wasn't too long ago uh, when it was first brought up on Sex and the City, I think, was the first place it, it was mentioned in public. I know uh, Oprah has diagram. been, Oprah has said, every woman should freeze their eggs. Yeah. Well, back then when it first came out in Sex and the City, it wasn't really a reality. There were only a few places doing it and the success rates were poor. These days, uh, the success rates are, are pretty good. Uh, and it works, and a lot of places are offering it. So absolutely, I think anybody who's thinking of delaying childbearing, it's a wonderful option to let you do that for whatever reason you do not want to have children, whether it's to invest in your career, your education, or take more time to find the right partner. Um, uh, there are, uh, it, it's a real option now that is successful. As, again, as long as you don't wait until you're nearly depleted of eggs that are high quality. You, you want to put those eggs away when you're young and they're still viable. But um, uh, you, you can expect uh, if you freeze a reasonable number of eggs uh, that you'll uh, have a very good chance of uh, using them for a successful pregnancy later on. We usually stimulate someone to produce lots of eggs in one cycle. Uh, it's not that we collect one egg every month. We use the same type of medications we would use for IVF uh, to stimulate the production of multiple eggs, um, and uh, we get enough frozen that you have a good chance of a baby. Not every egg will result in a baby by far. That doesn't happen naturally uh, uh, when we're not freezing eggs. It's certainly not going to happen um, uh, when we freeze eggs. Uh, but uh, freeze enough, and you can really count on it as long as you do it when you're young and your eggs are still healthy and viable. Is it painful or expensive? Uh, the price varies quite a bit. It is fairly expensive, uh, and most places insurance does not cover it. Um, but it is usually, typically several thousand dollars um, for egg freezing. Uh, it does involve putting a needle into the ovary, which is done with some sedation. Most people are sed given some sedation enough that it doesn't. It's not painful. Um, but it does involve, uh, uh, I think if, if you weren't given something uh, to, for sedation, it, it, would be, it would be painful. But again, uh, it's done in a, under some uh, sedation to eliminate the pain. But it is putting a needle in the ovary. Okay, that sounds painful. But I. Yep. <laughs> That's um, why we use the pain medication. But a good investment. Um, sure is. I want to be mindful of your time. I so appreciate talking to you. Is there anything I didn't ask you that you would like to share before we wrap up? I think we covered all the important things. Of course, we could go on talking about this probably for many hours. I know. <laughs> but I think I think we've we've covered a lot of important highlights here. We packed a lot of information in this time. Yeah. Well, thank, thank you again. I really, I'm so grateful you're doing what you're doing. Well, I'm grateful that you're getting the word out there. I mean, again, as I said, that's the best way we can make a difference. Uh, if I do this research and the consumer, the, the public doesn't know about it, it's not going to have a big impact. So thank you for covering it. Thank you for all you do. Oh, well, my pleasure.
and I think you'll like the book. It's very, it's support, it's a detailed support for everything that you've talked about. Great. I'm looking forward to reading it. Thanks for the copy. My pleasure. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in. Join me on my journey for practical, non-toxic living. Register to enter my detox community at www.nontoxicliving.tips, where you can find podcast show notes, links, and additional free information about practical, non-toxic living. That's www.nontoxicliving.tips. Until next time.